A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards, and I am so glad you've joined us on the program today. And when I say us, I mean myself and uh, the newest contributor at Bearing Arms, Ryan Petty, who has been a guest on this program uh, on multiple occasions over the past few years. Ryan is going to sit down with us today because uh, I am really excited by the fact that uh, Ryan is now lending his voice uh, not only uh, in support of the right to keep bear arms, but he's doing so uh, at Bearing Arms. He had a, a great piece last week, his uh, first piece, talking about the end game uh, for this uh, attempt to identify purchases made at gun stores, right? These new uh, merchant credit codes that uh, apparently are being rolled out here in short order uh, and what the ultimate end game of that is. So we're going to talk with Ryan a little bit about that but also about what he is hoping to uh, do and what he wants to focus on uh, uh, when he is writing for Bearing Arms. Without any further ado, take a look and a listen to our conversation with a friend, Ryan Petty. Ryan, it's so good talking with you today. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for coming on the website, for goodness sakes. Cam, I'm just thrilled. Like, uh, I'm thrilled to be writing for Bearing Arms. What a, like a dream for me. Um, I've been a member for years, a VIP member, and have been reading uh, your work for a long time long long time and the thought that uh that i could contribute in some small way uh to what bearing bearing arms is um i'm just i'm just thrilled and i'll say you know for a monday I, it, it's a happy monday and i this morning i had uh you know america never ceases to give cam and uh this morning i had Lucky Charms waffles with my grandson. So I'm starting off Monday on a sugar high, and it's feeling really good. Where I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad we're doing this interview before afternoon nap time comes, before the sugar <laughs> yeah. crash hits, yeah. uh, and, and, and we can talk about this. And listen, I, I'm I'm really excited that you are a part of Bearing Arms as well. You know, we've got I think a really talented group of writers from Tom Knighton and John Petrolino, uh, and now adding yourself to the mix. I, I think this is just. It's a great addition because everybody has their own viewpoint, their own background. Um, and one of the things that, you know, you got into in your very first piece, you, you were writing about these new merchant credit codes and what the end game is uh, for the gun control lobby. And I think this is really interesting because, you know, your own personal perspective, you are an FFL now. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something that, you know, obviously is going to impact you and, and your uh, uh, future customers. Um, so what is it that you are hoping to focus on? Do you have any areas of, of, of focus that uh, that you kind of want to you know do deep dives on uh, for bearing arms? Or is this just an opportunity you see uh, to, to, you know, espouse on whatever uh, the, the big Second Amendment news of the day is? Well, I think a couple of things and we'll get into the piece, the first piece I wrote, I'm sure, in more detail. But, uh, you know, first of all, um, having a, a daughter that was killed in a mass um mass attack at a school. I think I bring a unique perspective. I think uh, for a lot of folks, I'm a bit of a curiosity of nothing else because conventional wisdom would say that I should be anti-gun at this point and that I should be working alongside gun control activists to restrict freedoms, right? Because that's the solution to the tragedy that befell my daughter and, and 16 others that day. And quite frankly, far too many schools across the country. Um, 
but nothing could be further from the truth. And you know, I have had that conversation ongoing for the last two or three years on on this program. My hope is that I can I can help persuade those that are on the fence, those that are saying to themselves, you know, I would trade a little bit of freedom for a little bit of safety, and I hope to expose the fallacy uh, in that thinking and that we are no safer by giving up our freedoms and and, and in some small way i hope to contribute in that regard i think it's going to be in in more than just a small way but you know you're right about this Uh, the idea that the, the the false premise that if we just you know adopt these common sense measures that that'll make us all safer in many ways i think it takes us further away from doing the things that truly can impact public safety. We just saw a story, I think it was last week out of Florida. Kid brought a gun to school. Um, there was another student who became aware of it, uh, used, I believe, the the Guardian app, right, uh, and, and alerted authorities. Um, and this situation was dealt with, you know, without any loss of life, uh, without any attack on, on school grounds. And that's, I mean, that's a success story. Ryan, but that's not, we're not going to get there through gun control. You and I have talked extensively before about the fact that according to the Secret Service, what, over 90% of school attackers have said something. They've communicated their threats beforehand. And it seems to be like in, empowering, particularly students, but also parents and educators to know what to do when they become aware of something like that. That is actually a, a huge step in improving student safety. It is. When I I learned uh, about three weeks after Elena was killed in some discussions I had with the Secret Service about that statistic, right? That, And at that time, I think the research they were looking at, it was like eight out of 10. It was something over 80%. Subsequent research, they now, you know, with social media being more prevalent than it was in past years, it's now over 90%. But these attackers signal their intentions before they commit their uh, heinous acts. And so there's an opportunity to stop them. And quite honestly, it's better for everyone because if you stop them before they plan their attack, before they acquire a firearm before or, or some other means of attack, if we can stop them before, then we can get them into uh, programs that will help them uh, get their lives back on track. And so there, you know, it's, just, it's great all around. And it saves that community and that school and those families the trauma of dealing with literally, you know, death and destruction. So it's um, it's how it's where our focus should be. It should be on the prevention side. There are things that we can do. Will we catch 100 percent of them? Absolutely not. I, I don't want you know, I don't go into this with, you know, rose colored glasses. There will be some that slip through the cracks. But if we could stop nine out of 10 or more. That's that's a good place to start. Good news is it doesn't require uh, relinquishing of any freedoms uh, that we cherish. It doesn't require us to do very much differently than we do today. Just see something, say something, report it, and then we have to demand that law enforcement take action. Well, that's key, right? I mean, as as we've seen um both in Parkland and Uvalde, uh, when you don't have officers who are willing to run in and stop that attack as soon as possible, 
you know, again, that, that tragedy is multiplied. Um, and, and this is something else that I, I know that you've been very involved with, and that's the Guardian program in Florida, right? Can you talk a little bit about because we've got, you know, so many different armed teacher programs throughout the country. It kind of varies from state to state. What what does the Guardian program in Florida look like and what does it do? So what we decided to do in Florida that's a little bit different than maybe some other states have done that allow staff to be armed on campus is we said, first of all, it's a state law. It's a requirement. Every campus in the state of Florida has armed security or a, a peace officer a school resource officer or a school resource deputy, at least one on every campus across Florida. So we've we've made that state law, and that's required, you know, a lot of adjustments on the uh, on the part of school districts, and it's required adjustments and more training for law enforcement, but specifically to fill the gap, right? There's not a law enforcement officer that can be on every campus, particularly some of the smaller campuses. So we in, uh, adopted this guardian program, which allows school staff or in, in, in some cases, ex-military or security guards to take an additional level of training through this guardian program. It's taught by the sheriff in the county in each county in Florida that has adopted the program. And they go through advanced firearms training. They go through, um, there's a back, there are extensive background checks, some psychological evaluations, and and training on how to deal with these active attack uh, scenarios. And it's phenomenal training. I went through it, as many of uh, your viewers and listeners already know, because we've talked about that. And it's it's phenomenal training. It was some of the most difficult. It was it was four weeks for me, four weeks of difficult training. And those guardians leave that program with a higher uh, proficiency rate at firearms qualification than law enforcement officers are required to in the state of Florida. So phenomenal program. And just having that armed presence on our campuses is a dissuader to these attackers. They know they're gonna meet resistance and I'm convinced that we've prevented uh, school attacks just merely because we've got armed presence and they don't know Quite frankly, in a lot of the schools, unless it's a uniformed deputy or officer, they don't know who's carrying. So they don't know the when when and where the resistance is going to meet them. And I'm I'm certain we've stopped several attacks just because of that. You know, when you see things like uh, Chris Murphy scuttle uh, Ted Cruz's school security bill, uh, the progressive caucus in the House bemoan the idea of putting school resource officers uh, on campus because they say it, it leads to a school-to-prison pipeline. What's your reaction to that, Ryan? Well, it was a, a program that was designed to prevent the school-to-prison pipeline in Broward County that was part of the problem, part of what led to or made worse the tragedy in Parkland, is we had a progressive left-leaning superintendent that came in and worked with a left-leaning sheriff that said, hey, we don't want this thing called the school-to-prison pipeline. We, we want to stop it. Sounds good. So they basically just stopped arresting juveniles. I think they touted the year after the program began a 53% drop in juvenile arrests. It wasn't because of the program. They just simply stopped arresting violent juveniles. And so they had built this this program, this uh, really more, it was more of a PowerPoint than a program. 
and and these ki- these troubled kids would go to this promise program, which they weren't taking attendance. They don't, in the case of the killer in Parkland, no idea whether he even went to the program or not. And it wasn't really a program. They they literally just sat in kind of a detention class uh, for the period of their detention, and they went back to class. But it 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 really wasn't uh, a diversionary program. It really wasn't a programs or that are you know in place around the country and in the case of um, the killer in Parkland many believe he picked his target because he wanted to get back to, to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and he was denied that opportunity by the district part of their you know convoluted policies around around uh, you know discipline versus criminal activity versus you know when to suspend when to expel, all of those kinds of things, they messed up. They messed up, and he got angry. And you know, the thought is that he took he took out his anger on Marjorie Stoneman Douglas because that was the focus of of that rage. But you know, folks like Chris Murphy, you know, they're just misguided. There is no school to prison pipeline. There just is no school to prison pipeline. In fact, when you look at DOJ statistics. The number of school resource officers has increased since 1992. The number of juvenile arrests has decreased significantly. These school resource officers are not in our schools to arrest kids. That's the last thing they want to do. And parents need to understand that. And parents need to demand that their kids have that protection at school. Because if they're not on campus, they're minutes away. And minutes away means tragedy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I want to switch gears for a second and talk uh, a little bit more about the first piece that you wrote for Bearing Arms uh, and the end goal of these uh, gun control groups when it comes to, you know, peering at your uh, purchases made at gun stores, at least those made by uh, made with credit cards. It, it, it seems to me, Ryan, and, you know, I think you were spot on when you talk about sort of the two complementary goals uh, here. First, to Again, peer inside the cart, right, to to get access to this information that uh, is not currently available, but also to eventually shut down the use of credit when you're buying firearms. And I think that this is really part of a, a broader effort to delegitimize gun ownership and to denormalize uh, those tens of millions of Americans who are exercising their Second Amendment rights by pushing it into the shadows, right? And and to make gun ownership seem just weird and unusual and, and dangerous. And, you know, good people don't own guns. Do you think that that's part of this campaign as well? I think it's 100% about the social pressure. And that's that's why I wrote the piece. I mean, a couple of things stood, stood out to me. Number one, I heard your interview with Mark Oliver from the National Shooting Sports Foundation, and he threw out a stat where he said, you know, it's like 80% of firearms purchases or retailers rely on credit cards or 80% of their business is done through credit cards. And I, I thought, well, that's astounding. I, I'm not surprised by that figure, but if you wanted to take out your average, let's call a mom and pop firearms retailer, which is most of the business, right? I mean, I, I you know, there's a lot of big retailers that do a lot of business and they and they're they're perhaps less susceptible to to social pressure but let's we can talk through that one because they're not immune from it certainly um but if you wanted to attack the livelihood of most FFLs that mom and pop gun store the mom and pop range 
if you take away their their opportunity to sell firearms through credit cards or ammunition through fire through credit cards, you'll scuttle their business. And that's certainly one of their aims. Make it socially unacceptable, make it difficult to do business with gun retailers and drive them out of business. Absolutely one of one of their objectives. With regards to the larger retailers, I mean we've seen social pressure already. Dick's Firearms is an example after Parkland stopped selling, you know, AR-15s as mm-hmm. part of um, probably as part of an ESG. And I mentioned ESG in, in the article, environment, social governance, right? This is a this is a private um, phenomenon going on with investors that are trying to direct investments towards things that they believe are environmentally, socially uh, responsible and have good governance principles. And it's impacting, uh, you know, investments across the board. So I stood back and I said, you know, if you wanted to make firearms retailers and firearms purchases socially unacceptable, you would attack it through this ESG phenomenon and get investors to pressure banks to stop doing business with credit card, or I'm sorry, credit card companies and banks to stop doing business with firearms retailers. The way to do that, the first step in that is to create a separate code, a merchant code for firearms retailers. So you can differentiate between sporting goods purchases and firearms purchases. So I think that's the way they're they're going to uh, attack. It's another it's another angle uh, of attack against the firearms industry. And I have no doubt that ultimately where they'd like to get is sort of the conventional wisdom I mentioned in the article. Conventional wisdom is they would like to peer in that basket and see what you're buying. And they would like, uh, I have no doubt they would like to create a private registry. The left has uh, shown this behavior and we can go into, you know, we love to talk about COVID and what we saw and the way the left acted during COVID. But it's no stretch for me to, to say, look, ultimately what they'd like to do is be able to peer into that basket and they'd love to create a private registry. But I don't think they have to do either of those things to damage the firearms industry through ESG and social pressure. No, I think you're right about that. And I think this is, you know, as Mark Oliver said, I mean, this campaign goes back five years, uh, at least 2018, when uh, Aaron Ross Sorkin uh, pinned that column in the New York Times, uh, basically telling, you know, financial companies to to stop doing business with the uh, the firearms industry. Um, but this is still very much, I think, you know, the first step uh, that mm-hmm. was taken is the establishment of these merchant credit codes. So we have a, a ways to go here uh, and the fight is going to continue um, unfortunately, Ryan, we are almost out of time. So I tell you what, the next time we have you back on, let's talk about the authoritarianism on display here, not just when it comes to our right to keep our arms, but again, as you pointed out, you know, with COVID, some of the, uh, the other issues that we're all dealing with here and this, uh, this, I, I think you're right. I think the real crackdown on uh, individual liberties that we're seeing, but, uh, again, I, I just wanted to, to, to welcome you personally to, uh, to, to the Bearing Arms uh, group of writers. I'm so excited uh, that you are a part of the website now. I am so looking forward to, to your voice uh, and your contributions. And, again, I'm, just, I'm really excited, Ryan. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you for being a part of Bearing Arms. Thank you, Cam, for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, the next article. Me too. All right. We'll let you get writing just as soon as that. Uh, might have to have another bowl of, uh, I guess not a bowl, another waffle with Lucky Charms and some uh, 
some high fructose corn syrup there just to get to get the motor revving here. No better way to write than uh, <laughs> amped up on Lucky Charms. So <laughs> That's right. Ryan Petty from BearingArms.com with us here on Cam & Company. Many thanks to Ryan, and I am looking forward to seeing uh, his next piece in the uh, pages of Bearing Arms. The website, pages, website, whatever. At BarryandArms.com very, very soon. Now let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there. Not a true recidivist story, but certainly a sweetheart deal. Man accused of shooting at deputy and injuring a teenager pleads no contest to the charges and is sentenced to just two years behind bars. And it's actually not even going to be two years, believe it or not. Uh, Eusebio Montoya, who is now 18, withdrew a not guilty plea and ended up pleading no contest earlier this month uh, for this uh, shooting incident in Florida. Montoya pleaded guilty to two of the counts that he's accused of, uh, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, as well as possession of a firearm by a minor. And as a result of the no contest, he was adjudicated uh, guilty. The judge ended up sentencing Montoya to two years in prison, followed by three years of probation. But she also said that Montoya should be given credit for 165 days that he spent behind bars prior to the sentences in position. Both of these counts will run concurrently, so it's a maximum of two years with credit for 165 days. Uh, and if you get good time credit, then Montoya could be out far, far earlier than what this uh, two-year sentence would indicate. According to police reports, uh, March 25th of uh, last year, uh, that was when this uh, shooting took place. Uh, Montoya at the time was 17. There was apparently a, a manhunt for Montoya. Uh, a Lee County Sheriff's deputy was responding to a call. And when he got there, Montoya uh, approached a car, excuse me, the officer approached a, a car where Montoya appeared to be sleeping. As the deputy then engaged the uh, teenager, Montoya uh, approached uh, the teenager. He then began to shoot at the deputy who immediately exchanged fire. Montoya ended up fleeing on foot. When the deputy looked over, he saw that the victim in the car had been shot multiple times. He uh, began life-saving measures. Deputies recovered the gun that they believed that they uh, that Montoya used when they searched the area. Uh, and days later, Montoya ended up surrendering at the Lee County Jail. So this was an assault with injury. This was, I believe, attempted murder Against the sheriff's deputy, it sounds like the teenager was the, not the intended victim of Montoya's shots, uh, but still suffered very serious injuries here. And I got to tell you, I know Montoya was 17 and not 18, but this was really a matter of months here between uh, Montoya being adjudicated as a juvenile uh, and as an adult. And this slap on the wrist, boy, I hope it's, uh, listen, I always hope that these soft sentences will somehow still uh, be enough to turn somebody's life around. I have to say I've got no confidence that that is going to be the case here. But, uh, Mr. Montoya, I hope you take advantage of the incredible gift that the criminal justice system has given you. Today's armed citizen story, uh, Burke County, North Carolina, where an armed man was shot and killed after breaking into a home uh, there in uh, Burke County. This was, I uh, believe, Friday morning. About uh, 3 a.m., deputies got a call, uh, reports of shots fired. When they arrived at the scene, they found a 37-year-old Howard Jean Cook uh, dead at the scene. Authorities say that Cook had broken into the home, had gotten a hold of a gun inside the residence. 
He then pointed the gun at the homeowner, who was also armed, and the homeowner fired his weapon and hit Cook. Uh, Investigators are continuing this investigation. Uh, At this point, they have not officially declared this to be a case of self-defense, but given the uh, evidence that has emerged so far, unless there is a contradictory narrative that emerges, I would say that the uh, homeowner not going to be facing any charges for protecting himself uh, and his domicile against an intruder. Finally, today's good deed of the day in the right place at the right time, will unable to do the right thing, an off-duty officer from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, who ended up saving a mother and child that he uh, spotted in a car wreck uh, as he was uh, off-duty and uh, just driving through. Here's a, a picture of the officer in question with that child uh, who he saved. Marvin Cawthorn is a police officer in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And uh, earlier this month, he was uh, heading to North Little Rock. He's uh, on, I believe it's I-30 in Little Rock. There's a lot of construction there. And he said, all of a sudden, the traffic just stopped. He said, I saw people get out of their vehicles. And I thought, well, this isn't normal. So he left his car to investigate. And uh, he said, I noticed there was a black vehicle turned on its side. And I hear somebody say, there's a baby inside. So that is when uh, Cawthorn climbed on top of the vehicle, managed to open the car door, and uh, safely got both baby and mom uh, out of the uh, damaged vehicle. Uh, Cawthorn said the baby was bleeding. There was uh, leaking blood from his head, blood coming from his face. He said after he uh, rescued the child, he then jumped into kind of direct traffic. He said, here I am holding the baby, you know, directing traffic because nobody else was available. Cawthorn says he has been in contact with uh, the mom uh, since the accident, and he said that the mom considers him her, quote, guardian angel. He said, what are the chances that an off-duty police officer being in a spot where a police officer couldn't get to uh, at that very moment? Because, again, uh, the the traffic. Uh, He says this was an exit. He said, I could have taken, and if I just would have gotten in the next lane, I could have gotten there, headed off, never would have seen the accident, but again, in the right place, at the right time, wasn't able to do the right thing. Marvin Cawthorn, uh, Little Rock, excuse me, uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas police officer, we thank you for your very, very good deed. All right, that has got to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. Uh, again, I hope you had a great weekend. We've got a busy week in store here covering all of the news that you need to know about your right to keep and bear arms. I would encourage you to not only check out Bearing Arms Cam and Company each and every day, but to head to BearingArms.com multiple times throughout the day where we are constantly updating the website with the news you need to know about when it comes to your Second Amendment rights. If you like what you see, I'd also encourage you to become a VIP member at Bearing Arms. All you got to do, go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe, use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. As our way of saying thank you for showing your support, we're going to give you news stories, analysis, stuff you won't find anywhere else, exclusive to our VIP members because your support does matter. And it really does make a difference. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.